This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm a big fan of Juliana's perform- uh, Alexa's performance of Juliana. What has been the most interesting evolution for her character you see from seasons one to three? I think in by three, she has really assumed and comes to understand that she's got a very important role in things that she doesn't necessarily understand yet. So she sort of, I don't want to say necessarily takes on the mantle, but she really does become more of a figurehead, uh, more of a leader. And she embraces the idea of uh, actively resisting and what forms that that sort of resistance can take. And for stories, how how interesting is it for you now that, uh, you know, Thomas, we're assuming, has passed away? We're assuming. I know you can't give away information. But if he did, how interesting is it to be able to challenge the father, his ideology, now it's coming home, you know, his ideology cost him his son's life. Well, absolutely. That's where it hits hard, you know, in the personal realm. It's one thing to have a a, a sort of an intellectual ideology. It's another thing when it's your own family. And then to have to see your your family members grieving and in so much pain, your your wife and other children. So uh, I, I, I thought that was a really effective and emotional storyline that we carried through. Yes, yes. Last time we talked, we did talk about your season one scene, the breakup scene you had with your uh, yes. your boyfriend, which is one of my favorite scenes. Yes. Season two, how was it for you playing the finale where you totally collapsed at the end, the whole arc of the season, emotionally for you? Uh, you know, it was a long time coming, I think. I think there's a lot about Juliana, you know, in the very beginning of the season where she was very light and she sort of was processing things in a positive manner and, and trying to keep it together. And, and then as the seasons sort of unfold, the cracks start appearing and suddenly she can't contain that. And so at a certain point, I think it was it was long overdue by that point, I think. And for you, what was the most, uh, the, the arc from where do you see Juliana today at the end of season three? I know you can't give away spoilers, but emotionally compared to season one. You know what? She she's come such a long way, and I think she's uh, she's become very fixated, you know, in a way, which I think has given her a tremendous amount of strength and focus and uh, purpose. I think having lost everyone around her and, and and you know, sort of flying without a net, it's given her an anchor. You know, this this mission, if you will. I know you can't spoil it, but I did like the sister shot at the end of the season. So could you at least tell us that we'll find out more about that? You will, absolutely. And it's not spoiling it. It's actually been a really amazing thing, that, because I think Abinson kind of gives her this, this visceral sort of understanding of what these alt realities are and that it is real, that it's right in front of you. And look, you know, versus sort of explaining it would be too abstract. I think to have that visceral feeling of seeing her again was such a... Especially at that moment where you just you basically crashed emotionally. That's right. Yeah. You're the villain, the Nazi villain, stuff like that. I was really fascinated, especially by the season finale, that your ideology is now going to be challenged. It cost you your son's life. Yeah. How is that going to? I mean, you don't have to tell us much, but dramatically, how is it for you now to be able to explore? this kind of human dynamic to what you're... For me, actually, though it may not have been like fully obvious to the audience, I like to think that the hints were there, that for me, the reason I accepted the job in the first place, not that I didn't need the work, but the reason I accepted the job was that I was promised that after the pilot that you begin to see the alternate life of this person, the fact that you, you begin to see the man that he might have been had history gone a different way, and that that man still lives in him and is in um, conflict 
you know, so I've always played it internally that way, whether that shows or not. So this is the payoff for me. The more difficult it gets for him, the more challenged, the more wrong it goes for him, the better, as far as I'm concerned. So it, it carries on that direction. You know, the irony is that the worse it gets for him, the more he's rewarded for it externally. That he kind of rises in height and stature within the party as he internally feels, you know, questions it, feels the disgust. You know, it's, it's that, that's the essential problem of the character that I find very interesting and, um, you know, very timely. And then, uh, so theoretically, did you know from the beginning this is where your arc was going to go in leading the season three as a way when you, you know, first signed on? Well, to a certain extent, there were those hints. And to be honest, I've willed it in that direction as well because occasionally, you know, the writing, you get new writers or whatever and you just find that they were kind of, you're in danger of resetting to kind of generic bad guy in order to get the story going. And I've fought that at every turn because what's the point otherwise? I mean, for me, what's interesting about fascism, interesting, and what's, what's important about Nazism and fascism is that the first thing you do to make that possible is you convince everyone that they are the victims mm. and then they are defending themselves like every great bully feels they're a victim you know so in in germany they thought that they were the victims of the jews they thought they were victims of poland the victims that's so they're finally striking out for themselves and everyone's the hero of their own story that's what people do people have their own internal um you know newspaper system that tells them that they're the, the good guy you know What was your initial reaction to the script when you first read your character? Well, I was intrigued as to how he would fit into the overall world that has already been established on Man in the High Castle. Obviously, I come in in season three, so there's two other great seasons of the show that have done so well for Amazon. Um, so what I discovered was that Wyatt Price is this uh, you know, Irish immigrant um, which I loved because I felt that there was it was sort of tailor-made for, for me in a way. I don't know if that's true, but it was nice that I was able to use my own accent, you know. And, uh, and uh, he's sort of retreated from the, the Nazi invasion and uh, ended up in the neutral zone in, in, in Denver, to be exact. And he's there just hustling, being a wheeler dealer, um, working the black market for goods and services, and that's how he meets Juliana. Juliana needs something from him and they get on really well when they when they first meet and our last question is how is it how is it for you being able to live in this world with the set design you have the look the design how has that been for you kind of grounding your character i think the production design on this is absolutely stellar and it actually does make our job a lot easier the set in particular for um the palace bar in denver which is what you'll see at the beginning of the season is just spectacular. It's gorgeous, you know? And when you add in the, the music of the time, which is, in our world, slightly... It's not quite rock and roll. It's not quite... It's neither one nor the other because it's all sort of half... half you know, sort of stillborn in a way. The, the uh, 60s revolution hasn't happened, obviously. Um, so uh, when you add in the music and the characters and the situation, I think it creates a really um, rich... Uh, 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 scene, you know, and, um, and it really helps us as actors get into uh, what's going on. Obviously we hear at Comic-Con, you read graphic novel. What, when did you get into graphic novels? Oh, wow. Uh, I've been into comic books, I think it was the, that's how I learned to read. Like, I, my brother had a big comic book collection and I used to see it and I used to just kind of take one and look at the pictures and, uh, 
And then I've just been buying them ever since, really. Yeah. And when did you decide you're going to take the leap and start writing comic books? Uh, I was I was drawing comic books uh, with my brother and kind of creating the stories with him when we were kids. And we, so we made our like own little like flimsy comic books out of you know construction paper. And then uh, and then after I did the movie Fanboys, really, I, I had like a real. Uh, rekindling of my love of all this, and I had a little money in my pocket. And I was like, "Man, maybe I, let me let me take a shot at this. Uh, I'd love to to write something." And and um, so I I wrote and directed this movie called Hysterical Psycho, which was more like a experiment, like an acting experiment for me. And um, it takes place at Moon Lake, and uh, and Moon Lake is like this inherently haunted region um, that you go there and you can't escape and it's got everything from aliens to werewolves to vampires to demons to you know it's got all sorts it's got everything um, and it, which makes it's it's got so many crossroads it's hysterical so you know that's the gist of the 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 concept and I thought well if I could write, write a movie about friends going to Moon Lake and one of them goes nuts and starts killing everybody like a slasher movie why couldn't I tell uh, a million stories from Moon Lake from the beginning of time all the way up through the future and um, and how, how they all crisscross with each other and connect like a big puzzle and that's Moon Lake that's my first graphic novel so I, I um, so I have two volumes of Moon Lake out uh, and I did that with Archaea and um, that was like an eclectic anthology, all many different artists. Um, and I wrote many of the child stories, and there were other writers that came on. And um, and then I moved um, my my materials over to Chapter House, which is uh, Jay Baruchel's company. I, I did I did Fanboys with him, and he and I have become uh, good buddies since. And. And uh, so now I, I moved everything over to, to Chapter House, and so in October we're going to have this big Moon Lake omnibus uh, coming out with Volume One and Volume Two, and then like 150 pages of previously unpublished materials. It's going to be a big, like, giant book you could knock people out with in alleyways, uh, and then uh, and then of course more Brooklyn Gladiator. Um, and Brooklyn Gladiator was. My uh, so if Moon Lake was you know horror comedy, this is my sci-fi dystopia, uh, Blade Runner. You know this is my my epic saga. Essentially. Now, how uh, since you write, you've written, directed, writing comic books, how do you think that's helped you as an actor? Kind of doing other aspects of you know telling stories. Yeah, it's always good because uh, to try everything: directing, writing, you know, acting. Uh, try to try to have a a taste of what it's like to be in, in these different to wear these different hats and to be in these different people's shoes so you have a, res- a real respect for the writing um, when you come to a set and you can say they worked very hard on this and uh, it is your responsibility as an actor to to say to the writer whether it's a TV show or a movie you say I defer to you you know let's do let's do several takes where I get this perfectly and then could you give me one for me where I just kind of, you know, play around a little bit. And that's where your own writing skills come in and your own improv skills come in. And sometimes, you know, a lot of the time if you get gain a reputation for, you know, saying stuff that actually ends up in the movie that wasn't originally written, 
um, they let you play around a lot. So it, it's uh, it's cool, you know. There's there's a trust on both sides that that that's built. They trust you to to improvise, and they also and you respect them, and they also trust you to to get their words right. Yeah. Uh, so our big question is final question is: uh, Did you ever imagine? That you would be in Harry Potter, uh, J.K. Rowling's world with Fantastic Beasts. Yeah, that's this amazing franchise. I'm, I'm still pinching myself. It's like a, it's like I won the lottery or something. I don't know. It's like, a, yeah, I, 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 I was at a point in my career where I was like, man, I need a miracle, and um, I didn't know. I, I basically wished, I wished on a star one New Year's. I was like, I, I, I need. I need some stability here, man. I got my second daughter coming, and uh, I, so I did. I kind of wished for a, a franchise, but I didn't, I didn't know what it was going to be. Yeah, it's interesting your character because he's the only human really in the series. Whether like the only through our eyes how we see the Wizarding World. You think it's one of the reasons they everybody just loves your character so much because we feel like that character because we don't have Wizarding powers. We're just experiencing the wonder. Right. He's the he's the nomad, the Muggle. Um, and yeah, he's definitely the uh, the eyes of the audience. So, you know, and and he's he's my eyes as well. You know, I I share a real kindred spirit with him. He's coming on to this into the Wizarding World, and I'm walking onto the Warner Brothers set. You know, as in awe as he is. And I think that people read that in my performance, and uh, they're like, "Oh, he's one of us." You know, yeah. Arguably, from a sound design point of view, the most interesting script in a very long time. Oh, wow. Yeah, thank you. So what was your initial reaction when you read the script? You know, when I read the script, um, just right from page one, I was amazed by what a dream this was for a sound designer. And, you know, a few days later, um, I met with John Krasinski, our director and uh, star in the film. And before I could say anything, he's like, this is a sound designer's dream. (laughs) So I'm like, oh, my God, this is perfect. This is a match made in heaven. And it really was. Um, He told us on the sound team to just go for it, make ourselves happy. And um, we had such support. And uh, so it was really a thrilling experience. All right. So you love the script. You're meeting the director. Uh... We like to refer to him as Jim from The Office. But, uh, of course, uh, okay, so what was the thing? It's like, oh, my God, what's how biggest challenge? Like, what's the thing? Like, how am I going to pull this thing off? Well, you know, the uh, sound is a character in this script and in the movie. And sound is a matter of survival. And this family has gone through extraordinary lengths to... Um, do anything uh, to survive, including uh, pouring sand along the trails so they don't uh, snap twigs when they're walking, paint floorboards that are safe to step on that won't creak, uh, use an alarm system with light, red lights that doesn't make a sound. Um, so, uh, so they've got these sort of rules. A sound that's too loud is deadly. And when they break those rules, tragedy strikes. So... Um, you know, that was sort of the first big logic thing, like what sound is too loud and how quiet can we get? And actually we kind of discovered um, that we could get to absolute silence in the film, which is uh, the first time I've ever done that in any movie I've worked on. And it's uh, the scenes, uh, three moments in the film where Regan, the daughter, uh, who's deaf in the film and also played by um, Millicent Simmons, who's deaf in real life, 
um, when she turns off her cochlear implant, oh, yeah. we go to absolute zero. So, um, you know, th- it was just thrilling to be able to take those kind of chances and experiment with sound on a film. Yeah, basically the sound is, a, is one of the most unique characters I've ever seen in a movie, for this movie specifically. And in some ways, isn't it where you can use sound dramatically more than ever before? Because when you do the big noise, you know it is not just a scare. Or, you know, like in a horror film, there are real consequences. So was that kind of fun when you actually put the big moment in? Totally. You've kind of earned it by having the quiet. And in a way, if the whole film were just loud and you had a big sound, it wouldn't mean anything. It's really the contrast that um, is what makes it impactful. And, you know, there's a lot of films that are really bombastic and this sort of, I think of it almost as this race to the edge of this cliff more and more and more and more. And um, A Quiet Place was just so refreshing because it just inverted all of that. It's like, how quiet can we get? And then when something big happens, it means something. I especially was struck by the moment of the waterfall. Just the loudness of it, because we've heard silence, 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 and there's just a brief moment of peace. Yeah. But it's also really loud. It's, and it normally would be scary, that sound. And it's funny, you know, um, uh, recently we did an interview with Leonard Moulton, and he said, that is the loudest waterfall I've ever heard in any movie. And he said, no, it's not, by far. But it feels loud yeah. because it comes out of a really quiet scene, which is in the basement. So, so did you and John kind of like, uh, in the script, even the script, was it all there? The moments where sound would have to be, you know, was it really a part of the script a little more than normal? You know? Yes, it was really, the script was really scripted with sound in mind because it, as I said, it was this survival, critical thing for the survival of this family. Um, what was not scripted in the film, though, was going into the son- sonic point of view of, ah. of Regan, the daughter, um, which, uh, you know, which was kind of like the discovery once we started working on the sound that we could really put the audience in her shoes by going into her sonic point of view. And our, uh, John Krasinski um, described it as her sonic envelope, <laughs> which I like that term, so that's why we kept using that term. <laughs> now, with all that said in our interview, the last question is, and I hate to put you on the spot, be honest, did you and John Krasinski accidentally delete all the sound and say, let's just make it a quiet place? We'll, we'll say it's silent. You're on to us. <laughs> <laughs>
our costume designer, as um, Justine said earlier in an interview, really helped bring Holly to life with her and frame her in a certain way that showed the ways she was more independent and progressed a bit. And I think that, I know that Brendan was very, paid a lot of attention to the relationship and how they could bust each other and how we didn't want it to be a cliche of a simple father-daughter paternal relationship, but that more of an adult relationship and the fact that he was helping her become independent. So we did, there was a lot of thought that went into that both on and off the set. Yeah, in some ways she's mothering him, too. I, I like the dynamic when, and she also called him on, well, you let that guy go? Like, she knew there was something up. I love that kind of switch. And it only gets more so. They they have some fights. They have some stuff that goes down uh, that gets very dramatic and adult, you know, their relationship. It's grown. Now, switching gears a little, uh, Brady's clearly in a different place. <laughs> uh, <laughs> So he's a little more confined and trapped, obviously. But on the other hand, you know, is that actually free you up a little? Because now you can explore a whole new aspect of his character in this new world. Well, it was really interesting. The challenge this season was what was going to happen to Brady. And we didn't quite have the architecture of the first book, which we pretty much followed, Mr. Mercedes, even though we changed a lot of uh, the specifics. Um, but we had the architecture of the season. We didn't have that with this season, which made it complicated and more difficult. We had, because Finders Keepers, which is a great book, Stephen's second book in the Hodges trilogy, uh, Mr. Uh, Finders Keepers, Hodges and Holly and everyone don't come in until 250 pages into the book. So we had to th- change that, and we had to introduce some of the third book. Um, and... Uh, that was difficult and challenging and also the major element of what, how Brady, what was Brady going to do other than lay in a hospital bed and get bed sores? And how was he able to empower himself and explore the potential of the mind, which no one knew he could, of course, using it for evil purposes, which is his nature. And... Who was going to believe that anyway? And Hodges, being our everyman, of course, thinks it's bogus and and eventually starts to put the pieces together in a way no one else can. So that was obviously very challenging for Harry, the actor, and yet and making his lair, his mindscape, and the place he was free. And we do some really weird, wonderful as the season progresses in that lair. Uh, all right, so we're going to go back to the beginning before we get into the second season. What, uh, let's go back to your initial reaction to Holly's character when you first read her in the script. Okay. I loved her. Immediately endeared to her. Um, yeah, she's special. She's unique. You don't read that character that often, which I understand now why she has such a fan following among Stephen King readers. Um, so I felt... A, an immediate love for her, and B, a responsibility to the character where I really, because she's written so beautifully in the books and the scripts, I was really nervous about living up to what had been written and filling such a special character's shoes. 
Yeah, and the thing is, obviously, the novel, you know, is wonderful. The novel's great, the scripts are great, but you've got to physically manifest these things, which is not, you know, it actually is a different process. How did you embody, of course, she does have some very interesting physical physicality and... Well, I did a lot of research on stemming and because she's on the spectrum. Um, and so I wanted to learn a little bit about how people with autism um, cope and... So I, I watched a lot of videos, um, and also I kind of just, it, weirdly, I know this sounds strange, but in the script, her verb, her, the way that she speaks um, kind of like gave me a sense of how she might move. I don't know, that sounds so abstract, but it really, I felt like when I was reading them, I also kind of had an idea of how she might like move her hands or her lips or her feet, and it just kind of came. and And then I just trusted that and hoped that it was the right choice instead of not the right choice. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, your central relationships with Hodges. Yeah. Uh, so, how did you two approach that? Especially, let's start with season one first. How did you approach your dynamic uh, for the season one? Well, Brendan is incredibly warm. And wonderful and easy to work with and talented. And so immediately I just felt at ease with him. So that was right off the bat great. And then we just talked through every scene. So there was no like, you know how sometimes when you don't have a clear idea of what's happening, you kind of like bulldoze through things and just like hope for the best. But with both Jack and Brendan as my scene partner, Jack Bender, who's the director, as my scene partners kind of, um... There was just no, like, edging around things. We just talked through everything, and that allowed there to be kind of a very clear idea of what kind of a context the scene um, lived in. Yeah, I found it interesting because you're both so isolated for different reasons. And it was interesting how you pushed each other to connect. Because he did not want anybody near him. And you had always been told, you, you know... You know, Sean, so that was interesting dynamic. It's a sweet dynamic. They really do... I mean, it's like any kind of good relationship where you rise into facing the parts of yourself that are a little bit difficult. And he's a good partner, life partner in a lot of ways. Their friendship is really special. Now, jumping a little season two, obviously your mom had held you back, believed yeah. that you can be independent. Yeah. When we see you... You're running the agency. Uh, like, you're, you're, you're totally independent. <laughs> uh, I was especially moved by the moment where you sensed that Hodges was lying to you about oh, yeah. letting the guy, the crook, go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was like, so, how, so how, did, how did you view Holly's big change from season one to two? Well, I think that Hodges has created a space for her to really, like, grow into being herself. And that's part of what's cool about the second season is you see how her level of comfort with him allows her to kind of step into owning herself in a different way and um she's less of a child and becomes more of an equal and it was cool to see that show up in the scripts to be like oh wow she's really like you know stepping up and and she's unafraid of conflict which is something that she kind of was afraid of or would like baby around a little bit in the first season like there's like she didn't know how to just kind of like stand up for herself and I think because she feels safe with him um, there there's an equal dynamic between the and two. And I kind of like the fact you have 
superpowers in some way, you were a great detective. That whole, that whole, the thing that everybody considered disability was actually made you excellent. So did you enjoy that part where you actually, you're great? I love that in season one too. I love that thing, that this woman who's been kind of like overlooked in a lot of ways and is on like the kind of like fringe of society is incredibly capable and not only is she she's like emotionally capable she's very compassionate and loving and generous and curious like all these really wonderful qualities but she's also like a incredibly like computer savvy and like thinks in weird ways that allow her to solve these mysteries that are kind of a little bit more difficult for other people to get to the bottom of so yeah of course it's always cool to see someone who's considered the underdog excel in ways that other people can't touch Mike. Now, I don't know if you're allowed to give spoilers away, but I, we were very curious, uh, yeah. like producing part of Janelle. Um, you're the one who kind of brained Brady uh, in season one. You're the, the one who brained him and, you know, uh, the sealer killer. Yeah. Is there any fallout? Are we going down a road of this fallout from what happened in season one? You'll have to see. Oh, I was trying to get something out of you. Yeah. Uh, of course there's going to be a fallout. <laughs> I mean, it's a, the I whole I mean, emotionally, thing. at least. Uh, well, you'll see. Oh. You'll see. Yeah. I mean, it's a huge thing um, bashing someone's brain in. <laughs> so uh, He I did kind of deserve it. He did. But I was really interested in seeing where it would go as well. And it's the way that they handled it in the second season um, was more complex and nuanced. And it's not as obvious as you think it would be. And it comes out in a really kind of cool way so you have to watch it and our final question you know characters like you in real life the character you play are always marginalized they're not considered even tv they're not really taken seriously how's it for you being able to portray someone smart compassionate capable and not it's not really a disability it's a strength for you how is that for you being able to kind of show a, a real person in a way that's never been shown before i mean that's very sweet i uh i love that that was your response to it and i'm it's it's moving for me, and I like I was so excited by the character, and um, inspired by her. Like she's made me a better person, as dorky as that sounds. I really do feel that way, and so yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just happy to show show any character, but she's just so special, and I hope that it kind of sheds, like, allows people who are kind of living in that, because plenty of people out there live with autism and are on the spectrum and have these kind of things that people consider to be weird or off, you know, offbeat. Um, and they're actually, like, incredibly special and valuable, and I hope that people watch, people who might be living with these things watch and feel like they're seen in some way. Yeah, and he... Yeah. <laughs>
2008, which was when I started writing it. And the more I, as a teacher, as an educator, once you ask a, a really interesting question, you're, you're set. And I couldn't stop thinking about what the answer might be. And I thought, well, maybe, maybe my research subjects were right. Maybe those books I saw in the airport were right. Maybe these people are all around us and I just don't see them. Why don't I see them? Where are they hiding? What do they do for a living? And I just kept answering the questions. And then quotation marks started to appear and with my answer. And I thought, oh, this is weird. That doesn't happen in my day job. And I realized I was writing a novel. And I'd never done it before. I have never taken a creative writing class. The last creative writing I did was in 10th grade. Wow. <laughs> well, it's actually... goes to show you. It's interesting because we actually try to teach our students come from a critical studies background sometimes. Yeah. A different discipline. You don't always have to start the traditional, oh, I only can do creative writing in this one path. You know, absolutely not. I think, you know, if you... And, and I think what I hope is, is that my story encourages people to realize it's not, you don't need to have wanted to be a writer since you were 13 to be a writer. I didn't start writing fiction until I was 43. Um, and, you know, and that's okay. And so um, that writing is a journey and it's a process and that we don't have to pick one genre and stick to it. I was an academic writer. Now I'm a fiction writer. You know, maybe I will... Who knows? I don't comics. I don't know what will happen next. Now, dramatically, is it a little easier in this kind of genre to maybe explore human things? Because you're a little more freed up. You're not bound by the reality. Let's say, is it something where maybe you can explore character in an interesting way? Because it is a, you know, this kind of genre. What's interesting about it is, is that um, you still have to have a lot of rules. And as a historian of science, you know, if you create a world that has no rules, you just have chaos. You can't actually operate in it. And so you can explore, but then you'll, if, you, if you've done your job, you run straight into a rule you've set up that means, oh, okay, I, I actually, hmm, now what do I do instead? And that's what sets up the interesting, you can't just do whatever you want. The characters and the structure won't let you do that. And I think that actually... Sometimes you can see in, in, in long-standing series where they start to relax the rules and the plot just gets out of control, right? And so um, as the writer, what my job is, is always when I'm creating this is to, to stick to the rules that I set up, not set up exceptions, not be like, well, this is a one-off. You've got to have that integrity to stand by that original vision, which can slow you down. Maybe you have to spend four weeks coming up you know, yeah, it would have been nice if you could have done that, but you can't. So now what do you do instead? It will always be better. So how is it for you? Of course, when you're writing, you have an image of your characters in your mind. Then you go to casting. <laughs> how, how was that process? Because Well, for, for me, casting was like a dream. I mean, they came and they said, okay, what about Matthew Good? And I said, uh, Matthew Good? Well, he's perfect. You know, what about Teresa Palmer? Uh, perfect. So for uh, literally, I if if I I couldn't have come up with this good of a cast because I, I, I would never have aimed this high. Um, so and and honestly, you know, again, I started writing these books a decade ago. So Teresa Palmer was twenty two. She wouldn't even have been on my in my radar screen of thinking of possible options. So it was a wonderful surprise, and the casting. Um, agent and the the cast the casting director and the production team did such a beautiful job finding just a superb cast and now kind of 
can't imagine anybody else playing the roles. And our last question is, so do you really think there's no other way you could have done this other than the series format? Like this kind of, like a feature film, for example. Do you like the idea of, now I can really, they can really capture the book? You know, I mean, we tried for 18 months at Warner Brothers to do a feature film. And we had a very talented team, Denise Genovi, Allison Greenspan, David Auburn, Man's Won Pulitzer Prizes, you know. Um, it just was a, such a complex story that once you started to strip out the complexity, it became very ordinary. And then the only answer to that was to sort of amp up certain visual elements and it just didn't feel right to any of us. So I honestly do think that um, a series is is where this was always meant to be. And um, it just, you know, you have to kind of trust the timing of that. I'm glad I had the experience with Warner Brothers. Again, they put together an incredible team, and we worked very hard on it. It's just, But we, we could not make it work. And, you know, this, this production was able to get it up and running and do it, and I think the results are really outstanding, and hope everybody else does too. So you were like one of the first athletes to actually transfer to the entertainment world. Was that a conscious plan, or did you kind of just fall into it? Well, like most of us, when you're a child, seeing the big screen, watching the folks on the big screen, you put yourself in their position vicariously. And uh, I had the urge to become an actor, and uh, thank the good Lord, I got some uh, direction and uh, had some great experiences. And you are on the Brady Bunch, so that was oh, pretty big. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, Cindy and I, yeah, yeah, they, they got uh, Bobby to, they all misbehaved a little bit, but I think they learned the lesson. All right, so what was your reaction when you first saw your action figure? <laughs> uh, I was uh, thrilled. I mean, I had something I never planned on. It wasn't my idea. And all of a sudden, it was the first one. Uh, Mego yeah. came out this, uh, Mr. Abrams... Uh, uh, Marty made it first, and uh, it's endured, and uh, as you see, things have grown over the years. And my, our final question, and I'm a huge Jets fan growing, uh, growing up in New York, uh, do you think Sam Darnold has an action figure in his future, our new quarterback? I hope so. I hope so. Uh, he was terrific in college. He's carried himself well uh, through this process so far, and... Uh, uh, Lady Luck plays a role, you know. I don't, I don't know that he'd be ready right away this season. And if Bridgewater's healthy, uh, he's good. And Josh had a heck of a year last year. So whoever, whoever gives the team the best chance to win will be on the field. What was your initial reaction to reading the script? What? The reading the script when you first read the script. Oh, for series of yep. yeah. um, I was super excited. Actually, you know, they're very top secret. So I got the job before reading the script. Um, so I was very excited to find out what actually happened. So and then I was really pleasantly surprised. I knew that my character was going to. All I was told was she takes this incredible journey, and I was really excited to read what it actually was because I got to play sort of characters within characters and lots of different disguises, and that was really fun. And after you fall in love with the script. Mm -hmm. Then the reality is, I have to act in this movie. Yeah. What, what, what were the things from the script? Like, okay, well, maybe there's some of the challenges you thought, how am I going to do this? Or how, what approach should I take for a certain scene? Maybe that was more challenging. 
Well, you know, what was great was I joined the show in season two, so I got to sort of watch the whole first season and see what the style was, and then I got to sit down and meet with Barry Sonnenfeld, who um, is sort of the, the creator and showrunner, and um, he is so specific, which is the best thing for an actor, because I, I hate it when people are like, you know, whatever you want. Like, I just want to see what you bring to it. And it's like, no, no, I'm here to tell your story, so just tell me what you want, and then let me try to do the best job I can. And he is so specific, and he's so clear in his vision um, that it, it made my job very easy. And especially in a non-traditional world. Yeah. It would be very hard, you know, in that kind of... Especially in that yeah. world where, you know, we talked about today on the panel with Jim, like, that it's sort of a timeless show. You don't know at what point in time it's taking place. So you do really need a lot of direction and a lot of guidance. All right, same question. What was your initial reaction to the first time you read the script? Well, that's twofold. The first time I read the script, obviously, it's something that's extraordinarily uh, unique. And so... But after that, I had to stop reading the scripts because there's a danger with the composer knowing mm, too much. Yeah. Hmm. So this omniscient composer issue, you'll see in shows where we know that this is going to turn out okay. Oh. Don't set the stakes high enough. Oh, interesting. And yeah. This was a, John Williams said he doesn't like to read scripts because he, he needs to know where the surprises go. Ah. So I've been taking that to heart in our show in a series of unfortunate events. I'm like... Until I saw the last episode of our series, which was two days ago, I did not know what's in the Sugar Bowl. Oh. I'm very careful not to read any uh, scripts ahead so that I can keep the surprises where they're meant to be and set the stakes as high as they need to be without knowing if it's going to turn out. So it's almost like a sequence-by-sequence thing. You want to know the arc of the sequence, not knowing, you know, the, the next one. I know what happens in each book, but I don't know what happens in the following book until I see that is that how you approach all, all your work? Or? Not necessarily, but with this one, it's, it's such a delicate show. And there's so many storylines that I want to pay attention to the ones that, if there's something that has to be a story point that's early, later right, on, of course. be informed of that. But it's really important not to be ahead of the audience. Oh. How about for acting for that standpoint? Do you want to know, for example, at the end of the season where your character is going to be? Would you want to know how you can set that up? Or do you also want to be a little more, I don't actually always want to know that far ahead. Um, you know, it's interesting. I always want to. I always want to know everything. But that's just who I am. Um, but I, I do think there is something to be said for like if it ends up that you are the villain, it's kind right. of in a way like is it better to not know so that there's nothing like hindering your performance and you can just play every moment to be in true and real and in that moment for the character, or is it better to? I mean, I always think it's better to have. Like, as an actor, it's different, though. It's, like, to have all the information so that you can then go, I want to give a hint of this here, or I don't. You know, I, I don't know. I, I like to have the information, but coming from series television, I'm very used to not knowing what's going to happen because our show was unique in that they had all ten scripts for the season before we started shooting. So you got to know where the journey was taking you. But most of the time, as an actor, you're going week to week, and you're like, oh, this week it's totally different than, okay, then you just go with that. So I'm, I'm used to, you know, doing both. I think I prefer to know where, where I'm going, but yeah. I guess a big question for both of you, uh, our last question is, do you like this new model of TV series where it is 10 episodes or 12 episodes a season? So you can kind of go a little more in depth without having to drag out 22 episodes or 200 episodes, the lost syndrome, for example. Um, 
I think there are positives and negatives to it. Uh, the positive is that you don't get burned out as fast. You know, as an actor, you, you know you're in it for these ten, and a lot of the time when it's a shorter order, like I said, you do get all the scripts, and so you know where you're going. Um, but there is something great about having a very permanent job for 22 episodes. <laughs> I'm a mom. I like knowing that the, the, these months of the year I am employed and I'm working and then planning my summer vacation. So I think that it's, you know, it's a, it's, it, there are positives and negatives, um, but I think in terms of the quality um, of, especially for television being made like this, I, I think it's better. The shorter orders are, are definitely better for the for the writers. And what about musically? Is it better? Do you feel like you can kind of you know pour more into each episode if you're doing less? Well, it's more so the fact that it's streaming is really the big difference. Mm. Yeah. What happens? Oh, a interesting. Lot yeah. Shows on traditional network or on cable. The ratings are looked at while you're creating the series. Mm. So I've been on shows where it's like the ratings are going down, and since I'm the last person who services the show before it airs, uh-huh. they're like, maybe this is the last place that we can fix this problem. Oh, yeah. Um, and so mm. it's like, okay, let's change the music and see if the ratings go down. <laughs> when, I know. You're like, please I'm really not responsible for this. And so, like, what if it was hip hop? We'll get maybe a bigger, you know, a different audience. It's like, I don't think that's really going to change things. But you do it and you go through all the paces. With this, we really have to stick to a plan. And mm. working with Barry Sonnefeld, as you say, oh, first. he's got a vision for it, and we are all committed to that, that vision. And it's not suspect or can't be revised based on the whims of ratings. And so, that, for that, we really get to just get out one vision. And for that, I'm really grateful. So let's go to Riverdale first. What was your reaction to the first time you read the script? Um, you know what's funny is that I I did not end up reading the script. I think a lot of times I don't read the scripts only because I, I, I don't get a sense of uh, everything that I need to kind of really get the ideas going a little bit. So for me, for, but for me it would be just it comes alive obviously when the script comes alive. So that's when I get all the ideas. So the first time that I saw the pilot was just... It was just, it blew me away because I'm like, wow. And it was very stylized and all the color was there. And, you know, it was just, it was pretty, it's pretty amazing and very inspiring. But that's where a lot of times where I get my inspiration is. It's interesting because we have some of your colleagues that said the same thing. They actually don't, especially in a show that's an anthology or, you know, a, a, a long season, they don't want to know the end. No, they I don't. Want, I don't want to know. Music by sequence, by sequence. Yes, yes. Yeah, so I'm, I'm on a need-to-know basis. It's kind of like if there's a character that's being introduced in this episode, and then we, and then, you know, hey, you might want to write a theme for this person because he's going to continue on. That's so it's a need-to-know. But definitely, like, I don't want to know spoilers. I don't want to know because it's because I, I think first impression is there's a lot to be said for that first impression and you know gut instinct of like, musically and dramatically what something might need. So I, I feel like I always want to rely on that. And if I know it ahead of time, it kind of might kill it a little. And theoretically, let's for example say there's a character that's not the villain. Right. If you know it's a villain, would that affect how you score it? Like if you knew the secret yes. beforehand? Well, or would you I, be conscious of it? Am I, would, I giving I, it away? That, or? Yeah, I think I would be afraid that I would accidentally give something away, you know, musically, yeah. obviously musically, but you know, just, I wouldn't, you know, and I would just, I don't know, I just, I, I like to be part of the audience as well because like, you know, we're just, I love film and TV, <laughs> I love watching them, so, you know, it's, it's yeah, so I don't want to know. <laughs> Now, even a blind spot, is there? Is it a different approach to blind spot then? Um, well, not in that regard. It's like I still don't want to know, you know, anything. But but it is. There are some things. Honestly, what I like to know at the beginning of the season is 
generally what's what's the arc like what's happening like we did talk to you know for, for Riverdale for in season two we did want to know like okay we did learn that there was the Black Hood and we didn't know well I don't know I don't know to be honest I don't know if we knew what his name was going to be but we knew that there was going to be a serial killer arc to it and that so that's something that I think is good and the same thing with Blind Spot we know you know this person's going to be here or the brother you know Roman's going to be around or Roman's you know that kind of thing So let's start with Mr. Robot. Mr. Robot. What was your initial reaction when you read the script? Um, I, you know, there, there was not a whole lot revealed about how deep no. the show goes by just reading the first script. Even, even watching the pilot episode that they had shot by the time I met them, uh, I thought this is really interesting, but it only revealed a little bit about where it was going to go. And so it was after three, four episodes that I saw, oh, this rabbit hole goes very deep and, and continues now in, after three seasons to just be, to me, one of the, one of the great shows on TV. So what was, what was the biggest challenge from, from your standpoint when you say, oh, I love the script, yeah, I'm all excited. Hey, wait a minute, i got to score this. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's 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 kind of always the same. It's like there's a big blank page in front of you, you know, metaphorically speaking. And how am I ever going to fill that up with music? What am I going to do? How do I do this? I've never done this before, even though I have. Right. And um, and you just start doing it. And then at at some point you look back and you're like, oh, the page has lots of music on it now. And how you get from the blank page to there, it's a little bit of a mystery, but uh, it just it happens, thankfully. How far ahead of story do you want to know? Like how many episodes ahead, how many of the arc of the characters, or do you want to keep it more episode by episode? Well, uh, I mean, on, on Mr. Robot specifically, it, it's been really nice to just let it unfold episode to episode for me, because yeah. I like being surprised. And um, I've done both where I've read the scripts all the way through and I kind of know what's happening. And, and then I've also done it where I don't read the scripts. And so I just wait for them to send me the episode and then I sit down and watch it fresh. And now, and now it hits me, the new, the new things that are happening, plot twists. And then I go write music for it. So you're trying to get, then you're, really, you're almost like the audience feeling the emotionality of it and then internally triggering that to creativity. Exactly. But you did mention you've read sometimes the whole things. What, what would be an example of that? I did, yeah. I did that in season two of Mr. Robot as, okay. I, as I read all the scripts so I basically knew the outline of the story and uh, you know it had its advantages I got to know what the arc was going to be but it ultimately wasn't as satisfying as, a, as sort of a fan of the show because I, I really enjoyed getting that episode and just watching it and not knowing what was going to happen so in season three I didn't I didn't read the scripts again What was your initial reaction to the script of Dear White People? Uh, I think I was I was excited. You know, I saw the film. It was a film first before it was turned into a show, and and um, I was just excited to see people that looked like me that were that also were were like me in terms of their existence in between what was stereotypically black and everything else. And you know, these people that that maybe didn't act the way that black people are supposed to act, or at least expected to act, and that's how I've. That's like my life. I've always been told you should be this way and I'm not. And so it was always weird for me. And so I think seeing that on screen just made me feel excited to be possibly be a part of that. All right. So now you, uh, you love the script. You're all excited about the story. Oh, I got to be part of this. But now you got to actually do it. What were the biggest challenges like walking in from the scoring standpoint of doing the show? Uh, I think the biggest challenge is the type of music that they use as temp music. So they use like a lot of classic stuff like 
pieces from composers like Chopin and Ravel and Debussy, but also a lot of jazz stuff, like people like Duke Ellington and Miles Davis. And, and so all of the things that he puts in there as temp usually are like incredibly iconic pieces of music that then he's like, no pressure, but I want something that sounds pretty close to this. And so I think that's the biggest challenge is trying to write stuff that I think, you know, in a week's time or four days time that I feel like can at least get close to standing up to that kind of stuff. Yeah. What was your initial reaction when you first read the script? Of This Is Us? Yep. The initial reaction was, um, this is the best written script I've ever read for television, personally, for me. Um, And uh, the the second reaction was like, I can't believe I'm a part of this. Because I knew it was going to be something good. I knew it was going to be something well-received. Yeah. And your first reaction when you first read the script and knew you're going to be part of the show? I thought that there was no chance that this show would ever end up on network television because I felt it was too good. You know? And you were also pretty excited because you were like, I get to work with John Huertas. Yes, and John Huertas, I was a huge John Huertas fan. I still am. Um, wait till you see him in season three. Um, but yeah, I just I read the script and I started writing music for it. And I was like, this show, it felt so elevated. And I was like, I'd be surprised if this actually ended up on network television. And then, and then when it got picked up to series, I was like, this is going to be so well received, like you said. So yeah. And I get to work with my friend Dan Fogelman, so yeah. it was amazing. Yeah, and and he were uh, college roommates, and Dan kind of brought him into the co- the composition world, like composing music, because um, he was touring with his band, and he's a, a fabulous musician, uh, not only for our show, but his music is really good too. Okay, so you're in love with the script, and and each other, you love the script. Oh my God, a cast! But now you realize, ooh, we got to make this thing. What was what was your next phase? Like, okay, so what's going to be the biggest challenge from the acting standpoint? Well, for me, I go, uh, I live in different kind of decades, so seventies, eighties, nineties, two thousands, present day. Uh, so the most challenging thing for me was. How do I play somebody in their 70s being uh, pretty far away from being 70? So, you know, there's the old, uh, you know, uh, you know, I put on the old, the old guy voice and bend over a little bit, you know, and that's a caricature. So, you know, there are people that I think, you know, do that. It's a, there's a stereotypes sometimes exist for a reason. Um, but for me, I, I just, you know, had to figure out how am I going to be a believable older version of what the younger version of Miguel is, which is a lot like me. So you really always need to be grounded where your character is at the exact moment. Absolutely. More than most traditional shows, which, you know, take place in one time frame. Exactly. So you had to, um, you know, I, I basically just decided, I think all the people that I've met that are older uh, and wiser, um, they take their time with before they speak. They take their time before, they, they actually think about what they're going to say, they actually think about what they're going to do before they do it. So if you take your time, how does that affect you physically? So that's kind of how I manifested an older Miguel than a young. So I guess the same question would be for you is since you're doing music across the times, what are those the biggest challenges for you, trying to find the music for the scene and the, the time sequence? Well, yeah, I think the, uh, something I found early on in the process was I wanted the music to feel timeless and classic, um, and, and so I use instrumentation that will never go out of fashion, you know, and so I use, um, you know, acoustic guitars, my voice, cellos, wooden tables to create the percussion, uh, pianos, um, and it's all classic sounding, and, and so it can live in any decade. So we're in the 60s, it'll work. We're in the 50s, it'll work. 70s, go to the, you know, the 
the, the 23rd century, <laughs> it'll work. Um, and so as long as I stayed true to making a sound that was classic and timeless, I, it was easy. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.